A lot of people have gone on TV. Recently, a couple of famous talk show hosts, Dr. Oz, Dr. Phil, got on TV and said, look, this is not a big deal. More people die of the flu every year. More people die from drowning in swimming pools every year. And they implied that we are being overly cautious about this. Your thoughts? Yeah, people die in car accidents, but that's not a thing where one person getting a car accident immediately means three more people die in a car accident. And those three immediately means that nine more people die. Like that's the nature of infectious disease. I think it's a fully false comparison. Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Now, before we begin this podcast, I want to share with you an amazing website. And I think this is a product that you are really going to enjoy. They are sponsors of this podcast. Well, actually, they didn't even pay us to be a sponsor. I decided that I wanted to sponsor this particular website because their mission is so important in this time of quarantine. So where I'm at right now, you cannot buy groceries without a face mask. So everyone has to buy these face masks. But the problem is this. And this is what Rachel Harris, the founder of RTH Paint, explains, right? Face masks are a commodity that we need to reserve for medical professionals, like truly high-powered, effective face masks, often called N90 or N95. We need to save that for medical professionals. The rest of us on the street, we know that face masks are required. We know that face masks does reduce the spread of COVID. But the problem with face masks is that A, they are disposable, they are ugly, so people buy them, use them, toss them away, which is an environmental issue. And secondly, in a time when so many people are already fearful, the presence of people with traditional face mask exacerbates that fear. But what if we can create face masks that are useful, they are designer, they are beautiful, they actually make you stand out like a butterfly in a certain way because of the sheer beauty that this mask gives. Now, it's no longer disposable because you don't throw it away and it no longer creates fear. So Rachel is an artist. She's part of our Mind Valley community and she did something really cool. She used leftover fabric and she got factory workers who were unemployed, who were about to lose their jobs to turn this fabric into face mask. And as an abstractionist artist who is just amazing, she created unique custom face mask designs. Now you can buy these on RTH Paint. I just went and bought two of them. They are so, so, so beautiful. You can use Google Pay, so it's really quick to check out. Now this is the website you want to go to. Go to RTH, rthpaint.com. I repeat, rthpaint.com. Get yourself a Rachel Harris face mask. These things are gorgeous. And let's help these laborers, let's help the environment, let's help the medical professionals during the time of COVID. I just love the mission here and I wanted to give this site a shout out. Hi everyone and welcome to the Mind Valley Podcast. This is Vishen Lakiani, and I am here with one of my favorite people to have on this show. His name is Tom Chi. Tom was one of the early co-founders of Google X and he is a brilliant engineer, a brilliant mind, a scientist but also a children's book author, a DJ, an innovation consultant, a rapid prototyping expert, and just an all-round brilliant mind. Now, why I love having Tom on the show is Tom is such a compassionate being. He speaks 
with the empathy and the understanding of a spiritual teacher, but he brings in incredible science. Now, there's a really famous story of Tom Chi that I wanted to share with you guys. I'm sure you've heard of augmented reality. And one of the first augmented reality devices was the Google Glass. Larry Page came up with the idea of the Google Glass over 10 years ago. And he went to his team of his smartest minds and he wanted it prototyped. Tom Chi prototyped the Google Glass using chopsticks in one day. That's how this man's mind thinks. He's able to solve really incredible problems by connecting different fields. Tom currently is obsessed with helping fix the planet. So he travels around the world, meeting scientists, meeting researchers who are working on everything on how to reforest the planet by planting trees using drones, to how to use new technologies to allow coral to survive in seas where the temperature is rising. And he's working on all of this so that he can help provide humanity a safer, better planet for future generations. So Tom, welcome to the Mind Valley podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Every time I interview you, you are working on a new incredible project to help humanity. What's new? The last time we spoke, it was about corals, then planting trees with drones. What's happening now, Tom? Yeah, there's a lot of things that are happening. So I just launched a venture fund that's investing to help humanity become a net positive to nature. And the vision is that at some point in history, and hopefully it's sooner, but maybe it's over the next couple hundred years, but at some point in history, humanity is going to become a net positive to nature. That means that every single year that humanity is on the planet, nature is healthier and thriving and more prosperous because we exist. Let's talk about that. Net positive to nature means that humanity is aiding nature, not taking away from it. What would that look like in a practical sense? Yeah, so what does it mean to be a net positive to nature? Our relationship to nature can be simplified in its description by saying, when we talk about nature, let's talk about air, water, soil, and biodiversity. And on each one of those fronts, it's clear what getting worse looks like. Getting worse in the air means we have too much carbon dioxide and methane in the atmosphere, driving you know, climate instability. Getting worse on the air means we're putting in pollutants that will go and affect respiratory health and human health and environmental health. You know, getting worse on topsoil means we're doing agriculture in a way that burns down topsoil as opposed to building it up. This is just to say, when I say a net positive nature, I don't mean it in this in a very open-ended, you know, let's just uh, love our planet way. Like it can concretely be defined as what we are doing on those four fronts, air, water, soil, biodiversity. And right now, humanity's main relationship to nature is through industry. And as much as you know, we might have a personal relationship to nature, like we like walking in the woods, or maybe there's animals that we love, like pets or wildlife, birds we like to watch, most of our actual direct impact on nature comes through industry, the things that we buy, the industries that we build as a civilization. So what my fund does is it looks for disruptive deep tech which basically goes and jams up how industries work today and reforms them into the direction of having either dramatically less impact on air, water, soil, and biodiversity, or directly positive impact to those things. What are some of the most exciting technologies that you're stumbling upon right now? 
So one of my portfolio companies is called Iron Ox, and they do fully robotic agriculture from seed to harvest. And why that's important is that we use 50% of the habitable land on the planet to grow our food. So this includes the land that we clear for pasture lands. This includes the land that we plant for croplands. And there's this mistaken sensibility where it's like, oh, you know, the Amazon is being destroyed because of these evil logging companies. They're cutting down all the Amazon for timber. We're not. We're actually burning down the Amazon to grow soybeans and graze cattle. We're mostly destroying the Amazon and most of wildlife for food, not for materials. I'm not saying that there aren't clear-cut forest issues and you know, the Tongass and all these other places. It's like, yes, there are those issues as well. But the major driver for habitat destruction is food production. And this is even related to the pandemic crisis. Like as we encroach further into nature and drive out wildlife and run into novel viruses that are deep in a jungle or deep in a forest or deep in a grassland, then yeah, we create those conditions. Then we immediately put things on there like grazing animals or factory farms, things that really concentrate a lot of organisms in a way that spread disease. So beyond, even if you didn't care about nature a lick, then just for the direct impact of human health, the way that we've been making the things that we eat have been very, very damaging to both ourselves and nature. So anyway, Iron Ox basically does fully robotic agriculture from seed to harvest. It can grow 30 acres of food and one acre of footprint. And it does so in a way that is way less expensive, way healthier, doesn't require any pesticides, requires 90% less water, 90% less fertilizer, nutrient input. On so many fronts, it is less of a footprint. If we could make it so that our food production, instead of taking 50% of the habitable land on the planet, took one thirtieth of that, you know, took you know, one and a half, two percent then yeah, then we can give a lot of that space back to nature. And that starts to hit at one of the most underlying root cause drivers to our negative relationship with nature right now. That is amazing. So iron ox is basically 30xing the amount of food we can grow from a single plot of land. Yeah. And actually, because it's a type of greenhouse automation, then you can put it anywhere in the world And, you know, the greenhouse will kind of automate to make sure that the temperatures are correct on the inside. You can put it in a lot of places where you wouldn't have been able to grow food. And you can also put it closer to the places where people want to eat. Because right now, like the average piece of produce in the U.S. travels about 2,000 miles before it's consumed. That's a big transport cost as well. And during the winter, we get, you know, strawberries from Chile. Like that's obviously not great. You know, that's, I don't know, 8,000 miles away. So. Because of the 30x reduction, then something like Iron Ox, you could continuously feed a city of 100,000 people all of their caloric needs with healthy fruits and vegetables. You could continuously feed them just using two and a half square miles. That's incredible. Now, what are some other remarkable technologies that you've been looking at besides Iron Ox? And by the way, where can we learn more about your fund in Iron Ox? Is there a, a website you can refer us to? Iron Ox is just ironox.com. You can go to atoneventures.com, which is my venture site. A-T, the number one. A-T-O-N-E. So it's about being at one with ourselves, at one with nature, and at one with the universe. Okay, atoneventures.com. Beautiful. Besides Iron Ox, what are some other interesting technologies that are exciting you right now? 
Yeah, one of our most recent investments is one called Cruise Foam. And what they do is they've made a replacement to styrofoam and polyurethane foam that's 100% earth compatible, earth digestible. You put it in the dirt, it'll become dirt. You put it in the ocean, it'll become ocean without environmental damage. And it's basically created out of a chitin biopolymer. So this is derived from waste shrimp shells where we actually get paid right now to take away the waste. But even if we had to pay for the chitin, we'd be able to go produce the styrofoam at a lower cost per kilogram, cost per unit than conventional styrofoam right now. For folks that don't know, styrofoam and polyurethane foam are made from the petrochemical industry, residuals from the petrochemical industry. So they're another form of oil and gas that we're using to make a type of plastic that we then pollute our oceans, rivers, and streams and landfills with. So something like this, like I think all packaging needs to become earth compatible, earth digestible. And you can't do this just by guilting everybody into spending three times more. So if you're going to go displace this stuff, you need to go make something that's far more compatible with the earth and costs about the same or less. This is what Cruise Foam is doing around styrofoam. That's wonderful. It's so exciting to know that so many of these technologies exist. Now tell us about the technology for planting trees with drones. Why is that important? Yeah, so the reason that planting trees with drones can be interesting is right now, because of a couple hundred years of fossil fuel usage, we have a trillion tons of excess carbon dioxide up in the atmosphere that wasn't there before the Industrial Revolution. And it's the trillion tons that's up there that is driving this climate destabilization. And I mean, you know, the current crisis has overwhelmed all these other things that we had been looking at before. But not that many months ago, we were talking about, you know, huge swaths of Australia on fire. And that has been also true of the Amazon, you know, within the last 18 months. It's been true of the Western states and all of the West Coast and the US, you know, within the last 18 months. Like we are going to experience massive climate destabilization and we're well into it right now. Antarctica has had record temperatures. So you look at this, we have this extra trillion tons in the atmosphere of carbon dioxide. It's driving massive climate destabilization, which leads to all sorts of negative follow-on effects. And if you wanted to go address that, you need to do more than just stop emitting. Now, it helps a lot to stop emitting. We need to stop emitting. That's very important work to do. But if you really wanted to get back to a truly healthy planet and become a net positive to the planet, then you want to go restore the atmosphere to what it was before the Industrial Revolution. And one of the most compelling ways to go approach that is by growing a bunch of trees and more broadly terrestrial biomass, but that doesn't sound very sexy. But all forms of terrestrial biomass are great. And in fact, that point is important because we don't just want to grow trees, we want to grow healthy ecosystems. So you think about like, you know, we have used 50% of the habitable land on the planet to do food production. Those things used to be healthy ecosystems of various types, forest ecosystems, grassland ecosystems, lots of ecosystems, you know, wetland ecosystems that we drained or, you know, clear cut or what have you in order to be planting on them. And the drones that this team has developed, it's called Dendra Systems. They basically are focused on full environmental restoration. So they're able to go plant a diverse multi-species planting in the right pattern 
to be able to bring back full ecosystems as opposed to monocrop type planting. And they're able to do it with incredible precision. So the drones can go put a seed into the ground, you know, exactly where it's supposed to be in the landscape, plus or minus four centimeters. So imagine the algorithm is calculating, okay, well, we need these sorts of plants up here and they need to be mixed with these sorts of plants. And down the hill, we need to have this sort of thing. The drones will fly over that landscape and put exactly the right seed in the right place. And they also provide a less expensive way to go monitor and maintain that land, not just plant it. So if you can bring the cost of ecological restoration down by a factor of 10, then all of a sudden there's a lot of lands that we can focus on actively restoring that are now economic to actively restore when before we would have just left them barren or left them degraded. That's incredible. So a 10x reduction in the cost of ecological restoration. Now, are these drones being utilized by any governments right now? Yeah, actually, the Australian government is talking to us right now, as well as some folks in South America. And we've been in talks with some folks in the U.S. and in South Asia as well. But I'll say there is work to do on that front. Those contracts have further along to go to get in there. Now, scooting back to the underlying thesis behind all this, what if you could plant a trillion trees? And, you know, what is a trillion trees? Is that realistic? Well, we, just for reference, we've cut down two and a half trillion trees since the Industrial Revolution. So, yes, there's definitely room on the planet for a trillion trees. We cut down way more than that. We're only talking about putting 40% of it back. But if a trillion trees could get to maturity, then the average weight of a tree at maturity is between two to 20 tons. And a tree is 50% carbon by mass. So when a tree is two to 20 tons, it actually represents one to 10 tons of carbon dioxide that's pulling out of the air. And it means that a trillion trees getting to maturity could fully pay off the debt that we have incurred in the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution, returning the atmosphere to the health that it was before we started drilling for the first oil and putting up the first smokestacks. That's amazing. And it's such a beautiful vision. I really like what you said about making humanity net positive to nature. That just seems like such a beautiful vision because so many people talk about climate change, but we speak about it with fear and dread. And not only is there very few people talking about how we can actually tackle this, there's very few instances where we're given a vision of a better future. But on the other end, there are denialists who basically say the entire thing is a hoax. And what you just provided us is a vision of a better future where we're able to increase by 30x the output of arable land, we're able to bring down by 10x the cost of reforestation, and that humanity as a species can live in a way where every year nature gains because of our existence. I love that. That's such a beautiful vision, Tom. The thing about that vision is that it doesn't matter who's denying. Eventually, we'll just build these things. And it's really hard to deny a thing that's just producing your food. It's very straightforward that it exists. For the people who are listening, how can we support these companies? How can we support this vision? What are some actions that we could take? Well, some of the things that I invest in are definitely B2B. So some of the first clients of the new Earth Digestible Styrofoam are businesses buying secondary packaging. So if you're in one of the roles in the B2B world, where you're kind of in that supply chain, then yeah, take a look at that product. But some of the things like Iron Ox, Iron Ox is now available in some Whole Foods stores. 
And you should go pay attention to the ones that are B2C. It's like, if you're going to go eat some food anyway, why not eat food that has a dramatically lower ecological impact or a regenerative impact? And of course, if you are connected with you know, national governments or large conservation organizations that would like to do massive ecological restoration, but for a lower price tag, then yeah, feel free to reach out. We're definitely building out our project pipeline for the next couple. We've done like 25 you know, large-scale plantings already. So it's not like we're trying to prove whether this will work or not, but we're definitely building out our forward pipeline. I think the larger the project, the more significant the savings that people will have. That's amazing. And it's at oneventures.com. A-T-O-N-E ventures.com. Thanks, guys. And go check that out. Now, Tom, let's come to a couple of other conversation points that I wanted to have with you. As a scientist, as a researcher, as just one of the smartest people I know, I want you to help shed light for the Mind Valley community because there's a lot of misinformation going on right now, especially in this era of coronavirus, this era of quarantine. As people become fearful about the future, people sometimes succumb to conspiracy theories or ideas which are simply not true. I want to ask you about some of these rumors which are going on to get your viewpoint as a scientist and a researcher. But why I'm asking you is that you have a quality of empathy. You never attack. You gently guide people to the truth without people feeling like they are being called out for their beliefs. So I'm wondering if we can do a quick round robin. I'm going to ask you about these ideas and I want to get your thoughts. First thing is, there's been a lot of mention on certain news channels, such as Fox News and from the White House on malaria medication being used as a potential cure for COVID-19. Your thoughts? We definitely should be looking for effective treatments for COVID-19. This is a novel virus that our immune systems have not had any experience with. And to the extent that there are a bunch of potential drugs that can help or treatments that can help, then I think it's totally fine to be exploring that. Now, just as with almost any drug that's out there, there's very few things that have no side effects. So we should be cautiously optimistic about looking at alternatives and ask for, you know, what is the clinical proof before we start recommending at large scale that a bunch of people take it. I think you're talking about hydroxychloroquine. And it's like, yeah, there is some possibility that that could work. There are definitely a lot of clinical trials that are happening right now. And we're going to have the results of those trials pretty soon. I would caution against people saying, you should already take this. That would not be particularly well-grounded yet in the science. And we've already seen that some people have done that to some negative effect. You should be careful about taking anything before it's gone through some double-blind clinical trials. Okay, so the second question is this. When do you think the quarantines should end? And are these quarantines being overdone? Are governments being too cautious? So it's a two-part question. Number one, how do you feel about the quarantines? Are we being too cautious? Are we not being cautious enough? And number two, when do you think it will be safe for this to end? What are the factors that need to emerge? Man, your rapid fire questions are actually really deep questions. Yeah, when should it end? 
I think part of it depends on what your society believes is important. And if you're talking about harming the least people, then we should not be ending these shelter-in-place orders soon. It's actually way better to err on the side of clamping it down and like very slowly bringing it back up. And actually, even as you're bringing it back up, if you start to see major outbreaks happen, because I think that people are not even paying attention to the recent history. Like, you know, a month ago, the U.S. had far fewer cases. And two months ago, it had you know, like 100 or 200 cases. And like, think about how many places in the world right now have 200 cases. There's a huge number of places that are at that phase right now. And if you forward extrapolate two months in that world, you can have a problem that's as big as the problem that the U.S. is having with this in your population as well. So as much as you might say, oh, everything's fine, we like capped it off and we only had 3,000 cases and it hasn't been growing for the last week, let's open up the economy again. Then remember, that's where we were just a couple months ago. And we've seen that the virus doesn't care that much about your policy like is not only certainly capable of spreading incredibly quickly, we just saw that it did in a bunch of countries that didn't take precautions in a timely way. Now, a lot of people have gone on TV. Recently, a couple of famous talk show hosts, Dr. Oz, Dr. Phil, got on TV and said, look, this is not a big deal. More people die of the flu every year. More people die from drowning in swimming pools every year. And they implied that we are being overly cautious about this. Your thoughts? Yeah, it's very different when a thing is extremely contagious and infectious. So yeah, people die in car accidents, but that's not a thing where one person getting a car accident immediately means three more people die in a car accident. And those three immediately means that nine more people die. Like that's the nature of infectious disease. I think it's a fully false comparison to compare something that can grow exponentially with something which is kind of a built-in risk in society, which is stayed at a particular level and doesn't have an exponential growth characteristic. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's where people get tripped up. People, if you have two different things which are killing people and one is at a steady state and one is growing exponentially, you need to focus on the exponential threat. People seem to forget that. Yeah, and I'm all for auto safety improvements too. So fewer people die in car accidents too. And we're working on that. Humanity is getting better and better at that. But here's another thing. You've spoken about the risk of mutation. That's a real risk. So let's talk about the risk of mutation because that's another reason why we need to really, really be careful about doing everything we can to prevent this from spreading. Yeah, so in the presence of a lot of hosts, then this is a single-strand RNA kind of virus. And DNA has got an intrinsic kind of error checking because basically, you know, the other side of the helix needs to match up, otherwise the helix won't click in. But single-strand RNA doesn't have that. It doesn't have another side of the helix to go do error checking. And this is just a long way of saying it mutates faster. If you have a thing that mutates faster and you give it a lot of hosts, and a host is just a person that it's inside of. If you allow it to be inside of, you know, 100 million people instead of a million people, instead of a thousand people, then there's just a lot more 
base potential for mutation. Now, does a wider mutation base guarantee that a thing becomes more virulent or more deadly or less deadly or what have you? Nope. I can't say that with certainty, but I will say that at a larger base of hosts, the probability that something can go wrong definitely goes up because there's just more chances where you're rolling the dice. Now, a virus, though, will tend to select for infectivity. Like, it'll tend to dominate a population if the infectivity is superior. Right now, coronavirus is highly infectious, so it's reasonably optimal. Now, is there a version of it that would be even more infectious and also more deadly? Totally possible. Is there a version of it that is more infectious and less deadly? Yeah, totally possible. So I would just say that the expansion to more hosts doesn't necessarily work in our favor because it creates a larger mutation base. Right. And this means that even if we find a vaccine for this version of COVID-19, because it's in so many people, there are so many opportunities for mutation, there might be other variants of it that will be released. We would definitely be making it harder for ourselves if a lot of people get it. And this is one of the pushbacks on just the, well, you should just go for herd immunity. You know, everybody's going to get it anyway. Just let everybody get it. Like you're also saying, well, great, that we're going to have a very large base that this thing can be mutating off of. Also, early data from South Korea is basically showing that our assumptions of antibodies of people that have had the infection leading to herd immunity need to be examined more fully because. South Korea early on had a very, and still does, has a very extensive testing infrastructure. So they tested a lot more people, and they found the great majority of their positive cases. And they're now finding that some of the people that had tested positive and recovered are testing positive again. Now, is that a reinfection from a community spread within the people that they've been around? Or is it like a reactivation you know, maybe the virus went dormant and was kind of hanging out in part of the body and then reactivated. We don't know. But in either case, that basically paints a different picture for how viable is herd immunity as the way that you get this done. Because if you can be reinfected or it can be reactivated, it means that you shouldn't just let everybody get it. That's a pretty bad strategy. Yeah. That's an important thing, which I think many people are not aware of. Now, let's talk about vaccines. I just had Stephen Kotler on the podcast, and Stephen said that as of last week, there were 42 vaccines going through clinical trials. Let's talk about vaccines. Are you hopeful that we'll find a vaccine for this within the next 12 to 18 months? And what would that mean for the world? We will almost definitely come up with something that will be effective in that time frame. Now, of course, this is like a process of iterations, you can't exactly say it happens in this month or it happens three months from now. But given the tools that we have at this moment and the vaccines that we've developed over the last hundred years, then there's nothing about this virus that would make it impervious to a vaccine being developed. So yeah, with enough iterations, we're going to go find something that works. Right. That's amazing. But how long do you think that's going to take? Like I said, I can't peg it down to a specific time frame, but it's really more the number of useful iterations. If you're saying we're doing dozens already, I'm sure by the time we've tried a couple hundred things, we're going to find it. 
So if it's taken a couple months for us to get to a couple dozen trials, then you put six months into that and you know you have competent teams around the world doing that. We'll get to a couple hundred trials, like viable candidates within six, nine months. So now let's come to a controversial issue. There are people out there, including some notable figures, who have said that vaccines are more dangerous and that even if they did find a vaccine for coronavirus, they are not going to get inoculated. Let's talk about this because this is part of the anti-vaccine movement, which is very unique to the U.S. It's not as dominant in other parts of the world. And I want to hear your views on this. Yeah, this is another kind of lengthy discussion to have, but we'll stay at the very high level to start, which is in terms of like finding a candidate that is very likely to work. Yeah, that might happen in six months for sure. The reason that public health officials have said, do not expect a vaccine sooner than 12 or 18 months is exactly because of the need for safety trials. The purpose of those safety trials is to go and try it out against a diverse population of thousands of people in a double-blind clinical study. And double-blind has the one kind of tweak here where you say, well, there's going to be people that we are going to give a placebo to as part of the double-blind method that don't know whether they're getting a placebo or not. And there's always the ethical issue of, hey, we actually have a vaccine that seems to be really, really promising. We know this person just contracted coronavirus. They just recently tested positive. They're entering our trial and we're going to give them a placebo, even though we know that there's this thing that's really promising. But we do this sort of study exactly for the safety concerns that people are talking about. We want to make sure that if we are seeing the thing as effective and we are able to really size up the positive beneficial effect and really accurately size up the potential negative effect, that we do so in a way that is fully impartial and scientifically valid. There's no reason at all to fear vaccines because vaccines are going through incredible clinical trials, double-blind studies to ensure that there are no side effects or no serious side effects, more serious than COVID-19 itself. Yes, that is an accurate statement. Now, is it that a vaccine can never do harm? I would say it depends on the vaccine. Like I am a person who spent a bunch of time in the developing world helping communities that live on a dollar or two a day, learning, you know, paying attention, seeing what their actual issues are, not assuming that we know how to fix it. Because of it, I've been vaccinated for almost everything. And I remember looking at the yellow fever vaccine, and that is one of the ones where it actually has a higher percentage of potential negative impact. So something like, you know, four or 5% of people that get that vaccine get sick in some way over the following two weeks. They basically all fully recover. But compared to, you know, not getting the vaccine at all, yeah, you definitely want to get in sick weeks. And also compared to getting yellow fever, then yes, it is way better that 5% of people, 4% of people feel ill for two weeks. So I believe vaccines are a great thing about science. Vaccines go through incredible clinical trials. And I believe we need to vaccinate our children to protect not just our kids, but all children from things such as measles, smallpox, and all of these diseases that we are able to push into the garbage bin of history because of mass vaccination. Right. So something like polio, something like smallpox, 
we've been able to, if, if smallpox is done now, that's a thing that wiped out a huge percentage of North and South America and, you know, plagued Europe for centuries. But there are people, significant people out there who believe that, and this is part of the anti-vaxxer movement. I do not support that movement at all. But the question is, is the movement dangerous in any way to the rest of us? And is there any merit in this movement? Well, definitely a lot more people will be harmed by not vaccinating than by people vaccinating. A lot more. Now, I know in the anti-vax movement, there's a question where they say, you know, but there's all these people that promote vaccines and they claim that they do no harm at all. And I'm just going to be totally scientifically real with you. Like when I got the yellow fever vaccine, they disclosed to me that, you know, 4% of people will get sick in some way for a couple of weeks. And, you know, whatever, a tiny percentage, like 0.1% get seriously sick and it maybe lasts a month. But compared to getting yellow fever, that is much, 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 much better. The minor possibility that you get sick for a couple of weeks compared to the possibility that you are chronically sick or die from something is much, much better. It's all disclosed for you. And really, this is about weighing the pros and cons, right? So when I went to the Amazon rainforest to spend some time with indigenous tribes there, I got all sorts of vaccines. But here's the thing. Do you think someone in California whose kids are going to a regular school can decide that they shouldn't vaccinate their kids? Okay, so here's the thing. When you say to yourself, does the thing have any possibility of harm? And even if that's 0.01%, I don't want to expose my kid to any possibility of harm. Then kind of in the local sphere of decision-making, that seems to make enough sense. But when you realize if a bunch of people don't do that, that the number of people that are harmed is enormous. Like something like measles is extremely infectious. It's way more infectious than coronavirus. And kids can die from measles. It's almost like, let's say I didn't want to stop at red lights. Like, yeah, a tiny percentage of the time will save me a little bit of time on my commute. There's a personal benefit for me. And actually, if I live in a relatively unpopulated area, then maybe I get away with it. But like if everybody started doing that, it's carnage. And the same thing is true with vaccines. You might say, well, look, to me, there's some personal benefit. Understand the risk of damage is relatively small, especially if I live in an unpopulated area for me. And you might try to make and justify that as a personal choice. But as soon as any large percentage of people starts doing that, then it's a disaster. I mean, the whole anti-vaccine movement started out with a British scientist who suggested that vaccines cause autism. His work was discredited. His medical license was taken away, I think, several years ago. The work was widely discredited, but it went mainstream and certain celebrities endorsed it and popularized it, claiming that their kids got autism because of vaccine. There was no science behind it, no studies behind it, but the movement took hold and it became one of those conspiracy theory things. And yes, there are certain things we should distrust big food or big pharma for. We know companies frequently exaggerate claims. But vaccines, it's not that. Vaccines are thoroughly tested. They're rigorous scientific trials. And these are things which have had enormous benefits to humanity. And I believe the anti-vaccine movement, for lack of a better word, it's not helpful to the planet. It's wrong. And if you are faced with getting your kids vaccinated versus not vaccinated, yes, I'm sure as a parent, you have some choice in there. 
but you need to also be aware that you shouldn't be going against scientific advice and you need to think about a larger segment of society that you can be doing harm to by not vaccinating your kids. Because in certain parts of the US, diseases that we were once almost near eradicating from the planet, like smallpox, started re-emerging because of the anti-vaccine movement. It's more measles, but it's okay. Like, actually, if people really want to understand this stuff is, you know, go to any part of the world where they do not have access to vaccines, and you will see, you know, the spread of infectious disease and a lot of human suffering. And I think it's a weird kind of privilege that we have to have been so successful at vaccination for so many decades that it doesn't cross our threshold that this is a real threat anymore. And then we can start you know, playing around with it. It's like, well, since that's not a real threat, I'll do this instead. It hasn't hurt me yet. No, you should visit parts of the world where they don't have that and you will feel very differently about the benefits of this versus not. So let's talk about the COVID-19 vaccine. There are 42 vaccines in clinical trials right now. Odds are one or two or three or four of them are gonna pass these trials and are gonna be available to the mass market. Should you be getting vaccinated against COVID-19? Yeah, as the things come out of safety trial, then absolutely. And from the public health perspective, you can start with folks that are healthier and less likely to have any side effects to start. All of that already benefits the larger populace because it reduces the infectivity of the virus. Because if before everybody was infectable and now, you know, whatever, the healthiest 50% of the population has been vaccinated, then all of a sudden it's like, boom, half the time the virus is running into a non-plausible carrier versus a fully open carrier for the virus. Great. So you've heard our thoughts over there. Please, people, don't buy into the lies regarding vaccines. Now, let's go on to another myth that I do want to discuss over here, because I've seen people bring this up, even in our community, which is fairly well-educated, and that is that 5G has a link to coronavirus. This is causing some problems. There's been another major personal growth show, a British television channel who have brought on conspiracy theorists like David Icke, who have suggested that COVID is part of a grand 5G scam. This has led to 5G towers being burnt down in places like the Netherlands and the UK. Could you explain what is 5G? Because I think many people don't even understand that yet. And your views on this theory that 5G is somehow linked to what's going on right now. Yeah. What is 5G? 5G is just the fifth generation of wireless technologies. Before that, you know, we had ones that were just for voice and then voice and text and then voice text data. And then 4G is voice text data with significant amount of data. And 5G is lots of data. In terms of the wavelengths that it operates at, in terms of how your body responds to something, wavelength is very important. The reason that people say don't get too many dental x-rays is that x-rays are extremely short wavelength, you know, high energy waves. And yeah, it's called ionizing radiation. Things like that can directly damage your DNA. And these sort of high energy things are x-rays, gamma rays, ultraviolet. This is why you use sunscreen in order to prevent potential damage to your skin because even UV radiation of various types can be ionizing. But as you get into the visible spectrum, which is just all the things that give life color, whatever, then the damage is basically nominal. And as you get into infrared, which is just heat, then you don't worry about that ionizing and hurting your cells at all. 
And it turns out that 5G is even further down that spectrum. So just to understand, 5G is further down the spectrum from light and heat? Yeah, it would be less damaging to you from the ionization perspective. Really? So you're saying 5G is actually healthier for you than 4G or 3G? I wouldn't say healthy versus unhealthy. Less damaging. Right. It is clearly unhealthy, the things that are up in like the gamma ray, ultraviolet, X-ray zone. But like 5G is on the other side of that spectrum, past visible light. Invisible light doesn't have any ionizing damage to your cells. So it's on like the safer side of that. I wouldn't say it makes you healthier. No, but it's no more harmful than light, than sunlight. Right. Now, the two other things that can adjust the stuff besides the wavelength is the intensity. And the intensity, so for example, infrared radiation, heat is a type of infrared radiation. And like, you know, if you put your hand up to a fireplace or whatever, then it it warms you. It doesn't go and damage your DNA in any way. But if you get too much intensity in a tiny area, then yeah, you can burn yourself from too much infrared radiation. Now, relative to that, then the FCC and lots of the global bodies, and I've worked on devices that go through this type of testing, they figure out how much heating happens per you know, unit area inside of the body. And 5G is fully safer than almost everything around you. It doesn't have any significant heating effect. What is the cause of these conspiracy theories which are causing people to go and burn down 5G towers? I think it's a totally different cause, which is something very scary is happening in the world. There's a global pandemic And we're not old enough to remember, you know, the Spanish flu. Most of us aren't. A bunch of us were not directly affected by, you know, the first SARS virus or the swine flu or whatever, you know, because it had a smaller spread ultimately. The people that were affected, like the reason that Taiwan responded so rapidly to this stuff is they were affected by the last pandemic. And they got on the game real fast because they remembered. And actually, you see a bunch of the places around China that were touched by that pandemic, they got on the ball a lot faster. Now, you go and look at places that have not seen a pandemic in the last you know, 30 years, 40 years, and you are just losing this generational memory. And because of it, they're just like, well, we've never seen anything like this before. Because you know, the people that are alive right now don't remember or they haven't seen it before. And because of it, they are in this state of, this is terrifying and we can't understand it at all. And when you are in the state of being terrified and not understanding what's happening at all, then you are very much wanting to have a simple description that like, says, well, that's what I should blame. And in this case, it falls on the shoulder of 5Gs. I know that if you read the comments on Bill Gates' Instagram account, there's like, thousands of commenters blaming Bill Gates. And it's like anything that you can point your finger at and make some sort of story about will give you the sense that, well, at least I know who the culprit is. Right. And like that gives a sort of psychological sense of calming to you, even though it's also an alarming thought. And the specific nature of conspiracy is that it does both things. It both stokes more fear and it gives you a false certainty. And that's the specific construction that makes conspiracies so potent. And so something like 5G, it's like, well, great. 
now I can point to that and say, well, it's got to be those things. Look, there's an enemy. It's that tower. So like I feel settled in that you can say, well, there's the enemy, but it also stokes more fear. So it spreads really quickly. Imagine like, you know, the explanation was a thing that didn't stoke fear as well. Let's say the explanation was just like, oh, it's this biological process. Yep. Well, there you go. Then that wouldn't be a very useful conspiracy. Conspiracies need to go stoke fear because if they don't stoke fear, then they can't get you into your amygdala response. And by getting you to your amygdala response, it shuts down your higher faculties of reason. And that's the special kind of mind virus that a conspiracy is in terms of its ability to go spread very widely in a short amount of time. And part of the reason for this also is that the people who are spreading these conspiracies, very often they know that these are conspiracy theories or they live in cognitive dissonance where they choose to believe that it's real but it is good for business. It attracts viewership. I remember I have a friend who works for Rupert Murdoch's News Corp, right? He's a manager at News Corp in Australia. And we were hanging out in the bar once. And this is during this particular time, Fox News in the US was spreading a crazy conspiracy theory about Muslim people. And it was going viral. And I asked my friend, dude, what's going on? Like, this is so ridiculous. And he says, of course it's bullshit, but it makes us money. It's fascinating to see that so many channels out there, including the channel that spread this conspiracy theory about 5G, and I've been a guest on that channel. I mean, it's pretty normally a good channel, but its audience has blown up because of that. And so it serves the channel owner to keep digging in and digging in and digging in into this mistruth, into this misinformation, because it gets a wider audience. So that is also happening. We're also seeing Rush Limbaugh in the U.S. do that now, spreading a lot of mistruths about COVID-19. But what he's doing is he's telling his audience, which is in the millions, that the people they should distrust are governments and educational institutions, the medical industry, and so on. So again, they are spreading those mistruths in a way where it's serving themselves and it's growing their reach. And this is another reason why these conspiracy theories spread so rapidly. I would say if you can go and get people into fear and then you can isolate them so you are the only source of truth, then it definitely helps with your ratings and you can keep on playing that game for a long time until it collides headlong with reality. And I have no horse in this race. I don't care whether we deploy 5G or not. I didn't work on that technology. And I also don't have very many social media followers, so who the hell cares? But what I will say that is I'm a physicist and electrical engineer, so I absolutely do understand a bunch of things about the spec for the thing and how it works functionally. And a lot of things that are being said about it are just not actually correct. I would say, though, the thing to go chase after, instead of, you know, whether you want to listen to me or not about 5G, then some of the stuff that you should look at is is the source that I'm listening to constantly inciting me into fear? If there is, then whether they're doing it on purpose or not, they're definitely putting me into a mind state that I'm not going to be able to reason about the world very effectively. Right? So that's question number one. Then question number two is, okay, if I were to step away out of the fear, then where are the places that I should look to to be able to go get credible information about a thing? Should it be, as you mentioned, somebody who has a strong incentive in terms of followers or in terms of TV ratings to be able to go get a message out there of a particular type? Or should I go after folks that, in a way, 
I'm part of the boring class of people. Like engineers and scientists typically do not have many followers. So it's like, go to the people with no followers that have a lot of history and respect in like academics or engineering and just read what they actually say about it. Like, we don't care about followers. If we did, we wouldn't spend all our time in a lab or we wouldn't spend all our time talking with other engineers. Now, I am an engineer. For people who might say that I'm talking outside my field about 5G, I have a degree in electrical engineering from the University of Michigan, which is top five university for electrical engineering. And I build technology, but I also care about the truth. And Mind Valley has 14 million followers. And our followers tend to be the most educated segments of the population because we focus on high-end education, right? But I even see that amongst my followers and amongst personal growth leaders out there, misinformation sometimes takes hold. And when someone puts out something and blames 5G or talks about vaccines being dangerous because it's a counter-cultural view, they see their audience start going into a frenzy. They start getting more views and they go deeper and deeper and deeper into that. And that I believe is dangerous. And I believe it is dishonest. And I don't blame people for doing that because it's very tempting to chase controversy for views, but you got to choose the right controversy. I've gotten millions of views on my videos exposing sugar content and how food companies use sugar, but that is in alignment with what scientists say. And I'm bringing in doctors and I'm bringing in medical experts and I'm bringing in scientists in my videos. If you're going to chase something, listen to the scientists. They're the people you need to be listening to. A useful tool in order to make sense of the world is Part of the issue here is we use the word truth for three very different things. So there is like the scientific truth of the physical universe, and that doesn't care about anybody's opinion. In fact, the earth went around the sun even before there was people on the planet, right? The laws of physics, the laws of chemistry, the laws of biology were just kind of doing their own thing, whether there's people or not. And that sort of question should be resolved by science. That's one type of truth. There's another type of truth, which is social truth which are things like, oh, because everybody in our society decided a thing, then it's true for our society. So in Thailand, they don't shake hands. You know, they put their hands together and they, they do a little bow. Now, okay, is that true in Thailand? Absolutely. Is that true because of an underlying law of physics? Of course not. There's no law of physics that says that people in Thailand need to, you know, do a small bow and people in the West should shake hands. But that's a social truth. It's true because people believe it, but it doesn't need to be resolved by something physical. Right. And then there's a third type of truth, which is personal truth. And this is like the truth within yourself. For example, if somebody is LGBT, but they're growing up in a conservative household, their local social truth might say, no, you're this way because our family is this way. And then in your personal truth, you say, well, I'm kind of not that way. So, you know, sorry. And that is a type of truth which is resolved by mindfulness, introspection, a lot of the things that your community cares about and, you know, that you all teach. All of these things are important understandings of truth, but you need to use the right way of resolving it for the right type of truth. For personal truth, yeah, it's about mindfulness. It's about understanding oneself through introspection. It's about seeing how you know, you're triggered or exist in the world. Through social truths, it's about well, let's figure out what the society cares about and let's figure out how to be in society in a way that is harmonious and takes care of the most people. And for physical truths, then yeah, you should go and confer with science and go for repeatable empirical outcomes and not for what people say. 
So whenever you run into anything, you should say, okay, is this governed by physics and biology? Because if so, we better go pay attention to science on it, as opposed to, oh, I heard a person say this on the news channel about that. That's completely not related to how you resolve that sort of truth. And what we can say is that overwhelmingly, science agrees that global warming is real, climate change is real, that vaccines are a good thing, and that 5G is relatively harmless. Yep, that's true for all things. Yep. And look, I'm always open to new data because every scientist is always open to new data. But that new data should also be done in a good methodology. It's not new data for somebody to have heard a rumor and then this newscaster repeated the rumor. That's not data. So scientists were typically not that excited about you saying, well, I heard from this. It's like, oh, no, well, just show me the study or, or tell me how to set up the experiment because I'll just redo the experiment. Like the thing that's true about the physical world should be repeatable. And good scientists do that. So thank you so much, Tom Chi. It's been amazing having you in the show. And thanks for shedding light on so many and such a wide variety of topics. And most of all, for giving us hope for the future. Thank you. Check out TomChi.com, T-O-M-C-H-I.com. Tons of talks. And you'll also find amazing talks by Tom on the Mind Valley Talks channel. But go to TomChi.com. All of Tom's best advice, best ideas are there. His talks from Mind Valley, from TEDx, and more. Thank you, Tom. Cool. Thank you. I'm Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body, your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.